you are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Um, 
the material on the site put it on, at high risk on the register. It was constantly being exposed and small pines were literally just sloshing around the seabed. But divers couldn't see necessarily where they were. It was more a case of being on the seabed and getting whacked in the face and, and finding what it was. So, the, the Protection of Wrecks Act works through a licensing system. So, to access any protected wreck site, <coughs> you need a licence. And it's, it's quite a unique system, really. It utilises the volunteer role of licensee to involve licensees with sites as what are effectively voluntary custodians for the sites. In many cases, some of the licensees have been involved with the sites since they were first discovered, so potentially 30 or 40 years. So, they build up a real real knowledge of the sites. Their support and their commitment and their enthusiasm um, really, really is crucial for furthering our understanding of the sites and also for managing them. I've got a national remit for the 49 sites. I'm based in Derby. I, I can't go and see all of these sites. However, licensees often have houses that even overlook the sites. So I can get a phone call to tell me that there's a boat on the site who might be doing something that is unlicensed and I can act on it immediately. So they're very important for our management. Um, we have recognised how important they are through recognising them as official Historic England affiliated volunteers, which allows us to actually start to, recommend, to, to value the work that they do on the sites. When this site was first protected, there was no licensee for it, and I was, think I was despairing of ever finding anybody who'd, who'd want to, to dive in such an unhospitable location. And then there was a chance conversation between um, dendrochronologist Nigel Nailing and a local Thames diver, Steve Ellis, on a plane on the way to Maldives, and Steve was telling um, Nigel all about how he liked diving in the tent. <coughs> a year or so after that, I was talking to Nigel on the back of a boat and said, I know the chap that you need to dive beside Steve Ellis. So I got in touch with Steve, and subsequently, Steve, his wife Carol, and a second Steve, Steve Medal, became residents <coughs> for the site, and they actively dive it pretty much every weekend of the year. They had no prior archaeological experience. Um, they did undertake training with the Royal Archaeology Society to get some archaeological experience to get them on the site, but we've worked closely with them ever since to manage the site. The first step was we worked with the licensees and Wessex Archaeology to develop a fines protocol to allow the high-risk material to be recovered from the seabed, and so we could grant the licence for that. But it was quickly clear that the site really was still very much at high risk, and in 2013, we really realised that we needed to do a large-scale excavation project to mitigate the risk. So, we put, Historic England doesn't have any diving capacity. Whilst myself and another colleague dive and can become part of other teams, we don't have our own diving units. So we had to put out the project to tender to um, a project to excavate the sites, really, and assess the depth of deposit across the site, because we really were fairly clueless as to the extent of the site. We knew it was there, we knew it was being exposed quite rapidly, but we really weren't sure as to the depth of the archaeology across the site. <coughs> Following the tender process, Cotswold Archaeology um, won the tender, and we recognised with them that the involvement of the licensee was crucial for the work going forward. Um, and so, to facilitate that, the licensee and his team all went out and um, we gave them training to give them commercial diving qualifications so they could come on board as part of the paid team. The project had a number of communications objectives. It was really important to us that any project sort of shared the work that was being done with the public, so making use of all social media channels, um, a lot of press involvement on the site. Sorry, there we go. What 
resulted was a very high profile excavation project that resulted in a lot of recoveries from the site from the large scale with the recovery of a very complete um, 17th century gun carriage you can see there through to the smaller discoveries like a very tiny pin at the bottom so I'm going to pass you to um, my colleague Angela who's our conservator who's going to tell you a little bit more about London through the finds. <coughs> so, as has become clear by now, maritime archaeology is uh, largely hidden, as it is often inaccessible. There is, however, a huge appetite uh, for stories of ship, shipwrecks and artefacts on the seabed, as they are very evocative and drawn a lot of interest from the wider public. This sort of situation uh, carries on somewhat after an archaeological excavation where artefacts are being removed from site and then transported to the conservation lab, where they, are often, uh, where they often seem to disappear for, for months or sometimes even years. Some of these artefacts may eventually reappear on public display. Others just end up in archive storerooms and boxes. This is, however, by no means an unusual situation or limited to maritime archaeology. This um, situation has been recognised by the museum sector uh, as a whole, where conservators can sometimes be found to be working on artefacts on public view in, in either the galleries or um, in sort of makeshift little labs set up behind glass where they are then answering questions um, to visitors. Um, with the London project and the high level of interest that, that has generated, we have tried to address that and I will talk about that a little bit uh, later on. At the moment, we are in the assessment stage where we look at the quantity and the condition of the artefacts uh, and assess their research potential. This work is done by a number of specialists in, in collaboration and as the conservator, because you just spend so much time cleaning the artefacts and looking at them quite often for hours on end under the microscope, uh, we are quite often the first ones to notice unusual features or uh, little repairs and things like that. So this information is then not only documented and recorded, but it's also shared with the rest of the project team. And together, we are piecing together the story of an artefact, an artefact group, and ultimately the, the site as a whole. A common question we try to answer is what we can learn from the material culture, what that can tell us about the raw materials used and the technology at the time. And I've chosen a few examples here to illustrate that. So we've got... Um, a couple of spoons from the from the London, copperello spoons, and I hope you can make this out. At the base of the bowl, there is a, a touch mark, a maker's mark on there. So you've got a, a beaded circle with three spoons here in the middle, and then the initials GI either side of the spoons. So hugely important information in terms of the manufacture of these artefacts, which we then can often link in with historical artefacts to kind of piece that story together. The other artefact here is a, a detailed shot of, of a linstock. A linstock is basically an oversized matchstick that was used to, to light uh, the, and fire the cannon on board the ship. And um, <coughs> some of these linstocks, as you can vaguely make out here, have uh, scorch marks on them. So <coughs> that is real evidence that they were actually used. And we also have candles from the side, beeswax candles, which you know, you don't often get in an archaeological context. <coughs> and if you look closely at them, you can see the layers of how they were made. They're rolled beeswax candles, and with the wick still remaining in the centre here. 
we have uh, found quite a large amount of uh, leather on the site. And um, again, this material is still under investigation, but some interesting um, things have come from it already. Quite a few have uh, markings on the insole. This is something we don't uh, often see on, on shoes. And um, another example here is again an insole with again a marking on it, but what also um, appears to be as some uh, <coughs> textile attached to it. Obviously we know that textile was and still is used in abundance by humankind, but it's a material that doesn't survive very well in, in archaeology. So from that point of view, it's, a, it's, it's quite an important little fragment, and as I said, that's the only one from the side so far. Some of the um, shoe uppers seem to have things like um, paint on them, but again, this is still under investigation. Other artefacts are hidden beneath corrosion layers, and it's a conser conservator's job to reveal them. It does not only allow you to actually take measurements uh, from the artefacts and to study them close up, but by revealing them, it also helps the general public to, to appreciate and understand them. So what you see, can see here is a, um, a cannonball with thick layers of corrosion around it, and once you start chipping it away, you actually reveal the, the actual artefact underneath <coughs> it, and that information is then used by, by the archaeologists to uh, come up with uh, an idea about caliber and then the bore size of the cannons and so on and so forth, and then again, that all builds up the picture of, of the London. The other example that I put up here is, is a huge lump of concretion, um, and visible at the top was this sort of little copper alloy hinge thing poking out of it. And when I looked at it at first, because of, of, of the hinge, and it was quite um, shiny in places, I thought it was modern. And then I started chipping away at the concretion, and what came out of it was a pair of calipers. It's, um, an artifact used to, to measure the um, diameter of, of shot again. Uh, again, an interesting uh, piece for um, naval warfare. Sometimes, however, just removing corrosion layers and cleaning artifacts is, is not enough. Uh, we have to look deeper and we have a whole set of um, scientific equipment that we use to find out about uh, metal composition, inlays, decoration, <coughs> That then again tells us something about raw materials used, were they all local, did they come from further afield, was there trade going on, what are the trade routes, or um, obviously simply um, x-ray artifacts to check for condition, um, materials, anything inside them, that sort of thing. So as I mentioned earlier, this sort of information that we're collecting in this assessment stage has been used by a whole host of specialists to unlock and to tell the story of the London. And we do appreciate the great resource uh, that the London Bank provides us with, but it also is a, is a, research, a, a resource that we offer to others. As Alison mentioned, the, the licensee, licensee team is heavily involved in this uh, project, and um, eventually the archive will be curated by Southend Museum. Both parties have limited experience in dealing with maritime archaeological artefacts, and over the years we have provided a number of training courses to them. To start off with, we trained the licensing team with artifact handling and first aid for fines. <coughs> this enabled them to have the confidence to deal with a wide variety of materials immediately after excavation. 
And recently, I've run a training event for the licensee team as well as Southland Museum staff and introduced them to a few conservation techniques and processes. So the day was, uh, after obviously a short introduction, mainly um, hands-on so that they could actually carry out the normal sort of tasks that I would do on my own. And um, that did not only give them an insight into the understanding of conservation, but it also closed the gap that naturally occurs between excavation and museum curation. And apart from that, the London also provides um, potential for others uh, that are not part of the project team as such. For example, we've been approached by students um, to, to use uh, the London as a case study. There was a student from Southampton University looking at mar um, human remains from maritime sites and she used the London as a case study. Uh, another student from Bournemouth University um, took advantage of the fact that divers are going down to the site on a regular basis and on her behalf wood samples were deployed to uh, measure the rate uh, of infest infestation with uh, shipworm which is a, a problem not only for, for maritime archaeology but for, for maritime construction as such and uh, obviously that is a two-way process where we provide either material or um, make the site accessible to others and when we benefit from, from their research results. We obviously also host um, visitors to the labs, um, such as local uh, history interest groups or dive clubs. And at that point, we engage with uh, a group of people that normally don't get access to the material at that uh, stage in the project. Um, Southland Museum has uh, organized to work together with volunteers, specifically uh, on the London material. So they set up um, a couple of days uh, immediate during the excavation where the volunteers would stand at the end of the pier and accept the artifacts as the divers would, would bring them uh, out of the water. And that obviously does raise uh, the profile for the project a lot, but it also engages the community early on and ensures a continued interest and support for this project on a local level. Um, we also um, work together well, with the media, as you can see here, obviously the raising of the gun carriage uh, yeah, interested the media quite a lot last year, and that's a task mainly managed by Alison, and as uh, most of you will know, working with the media or the press offices can be, well, tricky at times to make sure all the stakeholders are involved and are happy, but it's also quite a time-consuming task. But ultimately, <coughs> obviously, we benefit from the raised profile of the London project, but also raising the profile for maritime archaeology as, as such. And I'm going to hand that over to you now. So just to sort of bring everything to a conclusion, when we first had this site in 2008, and I started early 2009, I didn't really think we were going to be able to do anything with it. But over the last few years, we have. We've had a really successful project on the site. Um, the licensee group won the Marshall Award for Community Archaeology um, at the end of last year for their work on the site and it was nominated for Best Rescue Dig in the Current Archaeology Awards this year. As for the future, well, we've got a further season of work planned for this summer and um, the plan is that we really need to concentrate on assessing and actually firmly concluding what the depth of deposit is across the site. It is clear there's a lot more wreck down there than we thought initially. Um, this year's work got taken up with the excavation of the gun carriage, which took a lot more time than we anticipated. So we have to answer our original questions this year. We also um, have just commissioned a virtual dive trail on the site so that 
non-divers can explore the site from the comfort of their own homes and their computers. In fact, many divers would want to do it that way too because it's not a nice dive site at all. Um, the press constantly use a picture showing this intact ship on the seabed, which annoys me to no end, especially when you think the ship blew up. There's nothing intact down there. It's a massive jumble of remains. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to actually start to bring what the site is like now to everyone's attention. And finally, the finds will go on display at Southend Museum once conservation is complete. Now, at the end of 2016, it's time for Historic England, the Licensee, Southend Museum, Cotswold Archaeology and all the other stakeholders to take a step back and look at the site and to work out what the management of the site for the future entails, be that a further large excavation, a massive excavation, or are we going to step back and start to manage the site more in situ? Well, any sign is going to tell on that. If you want to stay in touch with the project, it's got its own Twitter hashtag. You can follow it all on there um, and check out our other things as well to find out what we do. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.